Okay. One thing I think has to be uh, uh, just discussed here about the nature of the history writer of First and Second Kings. This is history, um, and we believe it's accurate history. Um, it's actually some very excellent history writing um, compared to what you find in the ancient times. Um, and uh, various sources are used uh, for this history writing that are sometimes even identified in the text. But it's more than just history, it's also theology. The writer is a theologian and he is attempting to communicate theology. <clears throat> and the theology that is reflected highly in First and Second Kings, as well as what we've already seen in Joshua and Judges and Samuel, is this Deuteronomistic theology. It's the basic theology of Deuteronomy. And what are those characteristics? First of all, an emphasis on the land. The land that is the inheritance here is a gift from the Lord. And because it's a gift from the Lord, God owns it. The people are simply stewards of that land. But when they adulterate the land by their sinful practices, just as the Canaanites had done and were expelled, they would be expelled. So uh, really the word I have here, ownership, probably is not best. Uh, that should be changed to stewardship. Okay, their, their occupancy, let's even put it that way, their occupancy will depend upon their faithfulness. And soon we'll see that the northern tribes will no longer occupy the land. They'll be dispersed abroad because they have fallen away. Okay. Uh, another emphasis here is on Yahweh's jealousy. And it is a holy and a righteous jealousy, not a sinful jealousy. As he said on Mount Sinai, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Jealous in what sense? He demands our complete and our uh, um, absolute allegiance. And no other gods beside me, in the Hebrew that's in my face. <laughs> no other gods bring before my presence here. Okay, so the, he is the sole God. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Yahweh our God alone. And then the one sanctuary that uh, in the Mosaic law here, uh, God would make his presence known among his people, he would dwell among his people at the one sanctuary where the Ark of the Covenant is. Okay? That was his gracious act where he, where he could be um, present with his people and where his people then could receive of his gifts of grace, forgiveness of sins, um, atonement, and so forth. And whenever now you move to other sanctuaries, other alternatives, then there is going to be a falling away. And we certainly see that in the, the northern kingdom too. And then blessings and curses that were part of the covenant here. Uh, Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28. Okay. And uh, there are consequences in terms of the covenant faithfulness. And if you are unfaithful, 
the curses that were prescribed in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, specifically of enslavement, of oppression by a foreign people, of drought, um, of plagues, and eventually and ultimately of being driven from the promised land would fall upon you. So a great summary, and you can read it at your leisure. We're not going to take time here. But a great summary that kind of brings together all these characteristics into one package is given in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 to 23. And I encourage you at your, again, your leisure to read that. Okay, this is uh, taken again from the Crossways graphic on the book of Deuteronomy that shows these same themes here. Um, that carries over now into the Deuteronomistic history and the theology of First and Second Kings. Okay, uh, will you stay in the in the land? Question here. Uh, if you continue to adhere to Yahweh alone, uh, to worship Him in His one sanctuary where He's caused His name to be known, and uh, if you do, there are blessings. If you don't, there are curses. So always um, uh, your uh, the decisive critical uh, issue here is will you choose death or choose life? These are the ways. Uh, well, the northern kingdom chooses death, chooses apostasy, chooses other gods, chooses other shrines. Um, and so God will now bring judgment upon the northern kingdom. But please recognize this. It took 200 years. Jeroboam broke away, remember, and set up those alternative shrines, the golden calves. And it's not until 200 years later that God brings this final judgment upon Israel. It shows his faithfulness to them, his long-suffering, his patience that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the kind of God this is. But eventually, since the people refuse to repent and turn, the judgment comes. And Yahweh uses Assyria to bring about that judgment. This graphic here is taken from Wikipedia, so there's a few kind of inaccuracies, but it'll suffice us here. Um, Assyria originally was in this territory here, uh, capital city of Nineveh, Asher, also a very important uh, city. Okay, And uh, so it's, it's in the northern part of Mesopotamia, um, where it is now Iraq and Iran. Um, and uh, during the ninth century, the empire extended this far, the Tan territory here, under Tiglath-Pileser III. He was kind of their greatest uh, imperialist and extended the empire dramatically. Uh, later on, uh, I, I'm sorry, um, Tiglath-Pileser, uh, I think it's an earlier one. Let me. 
No, it, it's Tiglath Pileser the third. This was earlier, but then he extended. I'm sorry. Let me correct myself. He extended it fur further here, the green area. Okay, and he was considered then to be the greatest leader of the uh, Assyrians. Okay, including going down into the the Promised Land, as you can see uh, here, and uh, demanding tribute from uh, not only the northern kingdom but the southern kingdom. Okay. You have these various deportations um, as well by Tiglath-Pileser from primarily Syria, okay, the Syrians, and some of the northern kingdom. Uh, but then, secondly here, by Shalmaneser and Sargon II, and this would be, um, again, roughly around the 722, 721 Again, the dates aren't quite accurate, and I'm not sure why they don't reverse it here. Um, but this will be the major deportation of the north, northern kingdom, the, uh, that takes place. And then they will be further deported even further east later. Okay? The Assyrians were uh, kind of cruel, bloodthirsty, uh, quite a military machine that God uses as his instrument of judgment, okay? Um, they had begun earlier in their history in a very hard and difficult existence. Um, uh, they are oftentimes attacked by uh, the folks from the east, the mountains, okay, over here and, and invaded, and that just uh, toughened the Assyrians up themselves, became much more hard-skinned. and. Um, uh, life was tough, and so uh, life had little value to them. The kind of their philosophy was live and let die. Uh, so there is incredible brutality, and especially as they become imperialists and establish their empire, there is great uh, brutality. Um, they, in their empire, initiate a policy that's called offensive defense, uh, which is kind of the. <laughs> Similar policy of what we've seen recently here in, a, in our own nation's uh, uh, administration of preemption. Uh, so whoever might possibly be an enemy, eventually sometime down the road, the Assyrians said, we need to take initiative against them immediately and uh, invade them and, and take control of their territory and, and enslave them. and. Uh, draw tribute from them and, and so forth. And uh, they uh, exercised great influence over the nations through a policy of terrorism. They terrified people. So it's called a terroristic imperialism oftentimes, uh, that they took pleasure in torturing their subjects. And the deterrent to rebellion was to be aware of the way you would get treated if you would rebel or resist in any way. Okay, um, so uh, whosoever uh, would be resistant would either be killed or disfigure, disfigured, and so it becomes kind of a horror propaganda, which was very very effective. And we have record in some of the ancient writings of the kings of territories where they get word the Assyrians are coming, <laughs> that they literally go insane from fear and from terror, uh, knowing that uh, they're in big trouble. 
Okay? The Assyrians themselves depicted their conquests frequently by uh, kind of engravings, uh, steles on stone and, and sometimes even uh, some metals and so forth, but primarily stone. And so we have that, and they're kind of these, these scenes, or if you will, strip cartoons. Uh, just in case you can't read, you'll get the message here of uh, what the Assyrians will do to you. And uh, this particular one shows uh, kind of this terroristic policy. Um, they were masters of, of war machines, of uh, battering rams, and uh, uh, siege towers, catapults, ballistae, and so forth. And uh, down here, you can't really see them, but uh, people are being trampled underfoot. And here, you may be able to see um, uh, those who are captured would be impaled in view of uh, others so that you get the idea this is what's going to happen to you um, because you have rebelled. And so there would be, sometimes they would strip forests and put up the poles for the impaling of, of the, the people. Um, uh, they also took delight in skinning, especially leaders and kings, uh, stripping them of their skin while they're alive. So, you, you know, if you've ever, like, skinned a little bit of your knee or your elbow, how that feels, well, imagine how it feels like having all of it taken off in one sitting while you're still alive. And they had their ways to make sure that you stayed alive. And then the, so the previous, the king who was skinned alive, uh, his skin would be taken and <coughs> tanned and so forth. And uh, the throne would be upholstered in the king's skin, often with his face, you know, right in the back there, so that the next king would have to sit on that throne and remember uh, who's actually in charge here, the Assyrians, okay? So, uh, finally, one of the practices of this, the Assyrians, and a very effective one, one, one was genocide, and this isn't just exterminating of nations and nationalities and tribes and races and so forth, killing them all, although they did plenty of that. But it was of redistributing them, of, of, um, of uh, relocating them. And this is actually what happens then with the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel, where you have the t 10 tribes that are relocated throughout this vast empire. Okay, and uh, uh, they're distributed all over so that the tribes now, uh, the people who survive, intermarry with the native people, and native people from many other conquered territories are moved into the northern kingdom and intermarry with the uh, Israelites who are left there. Okay, and those who intermarry then are eventually become the Samaritans. In the New Testament, you hear, hear about the Samaritans and how the Jews despised the Samaritans because they were not of the pure breed. They were Israelites who had intermarried with Gentiles from all over the Assyrian Empire who had been brought in. Okay. So, so what you have here then is God's judgment, and this is again holy war, but it's God bringing foreign nations to exercise his judgment and the prophets here will announce uh, to the Israelites, if you resist these 
foreign nations, the Assyrians and later the Babylonians, you will be fighting against God because God is using them as an instrument to bring judgment upon the nation. So here you've got the symbol for the Assyrians for the northern kingdom and later the Babylonians for the southern kingdoms and Yahweh roars his judgment and sometimes even the Egyptians. God will bring as his instruments of judgment. So somewhere around 722, 721 BC here then, you have the defeat of the northern kingdom and the dispersion of the people. They are led off into exile, scattered throughout this vast empire. Okay? And you have what now is referred to as the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Um, these Israelites never return to the land. Okay, so you do not have a return of these northern tribes to the land. They are gone forever. Those ten tribes are gone forever in terms of being dispersed. Now, the interesting thing is, we'll look at this like tomorrow when we examine some of the prophets. In another way, though, they are brought back into the covenant. The prophets will speak of this. How will they be brought back to the covenant with Yahweh? Through Messiah. And how will they be brought back through Messiah? As Gentiles. Okay. So there is the promise through the Messiah that these ten lost tribes will be restored into God's kingdom. But the way that God does it is by bringing the Gentiles because now they have become Gentiles. They're intermarried among the Gentiles. Okay. So it's an amazing way in which God still keeps his promise, uh, but now by bringing them back as Gentiles. So uh, we've seen now the division of uh, the two kingdoms, looked at the northern kingdom. Just a few words about what happens in the southern kingdom here. Just a, a, a couple of notable figures that you need to be aware of. Uh, again, you notice here that in terms of the southern kingdom, there is one united dynasty uh, that does not change, as you have here. Okay? So um, there's more stability. But the line of David, just as Nathan promised David, as long as there is a throne in Jerusalem, one of your descendants will sit on that throne. And that's the case here. Okay, well. Okay, so now let's look at the southern kingdom of Judah after the fall of Israel, sometime after 721, to the actual exile of the uh, people of Judah in 587, 586. Okay, so again, we're focusing on this territory here now. Uh, this has been uh, destroyed. The captives have been taken. Uh, others have been brought in to settle the land. Um, the first important figure here, after the fall of the northern kingdom, is King Hezekiah. So he begins his reign around 715, just you know, seven or six years after the fall of the northern kingdom. 
and uh, he is acclaimed highly by the writer of 2 Kings. Uh, in fact, uh, he is kind of the supreme king in terms of righteousness and faithfulness to the Lord in the eyes of uh, this Deuteronomistic historian who writes 2 Kings. Okay. Um, what is most noteworthy about Hezekiah is that he does turn his heart fully to the Lord and uh, seeks the Lord's will. Uh, there are some times when uh, uh, he doesn't trust completely uh, and he seeks the support of foreign countries and so forth. And yet, in the end, he's always returning to the Lord and trusting the Lord. Uh, one particular episode demonstrates that most fully, and that is while Assyria now uh, has its eye on Judah and actually has besieged Jerusalem. So the Assyrians are around Jerusalem. Hezekiah, as the king, pleads to the Lord, prays to the Lord, and yet his prayer is one of great faith. He says, you know, as frightening as the Assyrians are and as intimidating as they are, Lord, I know they're nothing compared to you, and their gods are nothing compared to you. In fact, their gods are nothing. You are the true God. You're the God not just of Judah here, but of the ends of the earth. And you can do as you see fit. And this follows after some intimidation by the uh, propagandists who are surrounding the city. Uh, they're broadcasting up within earshot of the people in Jerusalem in the Hebrew language all kinds of threats and intimidation and, and saying you need to just surrender and you'll be a lot better off uh, if you surrender. Uh, your God can't deliver you. None of the other gods delivered all the other people we've conquered. Your gods won't do that. Our gods are supreme. So it was really a kind of um, uh, dishonoring of Yahweh. And uh, Hezekiah highlights that as well, too. Lord, how can the, your name be dishonored in this way? And so um, the Lord answers Hezekiah's prayer. And uh, that night, the angel smites 185,000 of the Assyrians who are besieged around the city. Sennacherib, Sennacherib who is the uh, Assyrian emperor general, um, well, emperor, he's, he's the, the king, uh, is forced then to retreat and go back to Nineveh, where he himself is assassinated by his own sons, um, and it's a great victory, show of the Lord's deliverance, and the faithfulness of Hezekiah. And an interesting side here is just from the extra biblical literature, um, Sennacherib himself records in the Assyrian annals that he had done this siege. And he even says, I caged Hezekiah like a bird. But he never reports that he actually conquered the city. He just says, I caged him in. Uh, he himself uh, does not 
acknowledge defeat. That would be unheard of for an Assyrian to acknowledge defeat. But he also does not claim victory. So that's some kind of extra biblical evidence. In uh, Herodotus, did we have someone in this class who's a, yeah, you're, you're the one who read Herodotus uh, from front to back. Uh, and Herodotus in his histories uh, records uh, this incident and says that uh, mice invaded the Assyrian camp and uh, chewed all of the bowstrings. And uh, so the Assyrians weren't able to fight and were defeated because they had no weapons, no bowstrings, and so forth. And uh, there's probably a kernel of truth there. It's possible that the Lord used as his angel of death um, mice and rats and so forth that brought some plague upon the, the uh, uh, Assyrians. But again, even Herodotus reports that this just took place overnight. It's just like overnight the, the mice overtook the camp and this happened. So there's some, some collaboration or cooperation, I should say, um, from extra biblical literature. Okay, so Hezekiah, uh, one of the most stellar figures uh, in the record here. But then his son Manasseh goes just the opposite. On uh, Saturday, my family and I went to Six Flags with probably about half of the metro population of <laughs> St. Louis here. Um, and I was fortunate because we got there early to go on one of the roller coaster rides. And it's kind of, and there was one, the new. Um, Evil Knievel ride, which you know, you just go on to the top, and it feels, it looks like, and it feels like you're going to go perpendicular down to the ground, you know. But it's just a quick, swift uh, descent. And uh, what you have here with Manasseh, with Hezekiah, things had been on the upswing, but now with Manasseh, very quickly things just go down the tubes. Uh, Israel goes down the tubes. And uh, uh, Manasseh, as you can see, has a long reign. Okay. Um, and uh, yet it's a terrible reign, a great apostasy. Uh, he raises up high places all over the territory, altars to the Baals, Asheroth, Asherah poles, uh, just engages in this. The, the temple prostitution. Uh, he, uh, all over Jerusalem, brings in the Baals uh, so that the, the text says it's worse than when the Canaanites were there. Even in the temple, he establishes shrines to the pagan gods. And in the, the, the very temple itself, in the, the holy place, he puts up an Asherah pole. So quite a desecration. Um, he offers his son up as sacrifice in the fire to the pagan god uh, Chemish, Molech, gods, um, and uh, just in, and and causes Israel to sin. And uh, so just as Hezekiah was described as perhaps the most faithful king of Israel. His son 
Manasseh now is considered the worst king of Judah, not Israel, of Judah, the worst king of Judah. And he brings things to such a low point that it's a point of no return. And the prophets now will say there's, the judgment will come. <laughs> it's inevitable because of what Manasseh has done. And all of these shrines and gods and so forth that Manasseh has become firmly grounded in the psyche and the worship of the people of Judah. So now they are forsaking the Lord too. And although his son will reverse things, and thanks be to God for that, Josiah, the apostasy is so ingrained that Josiah's reformation is pretty um, temporary and superficial, just kind of the surface. But deep down in the people's lives, there still is the paganism. Okay, so after Manasseh then, uh, his son Ammon has a short reign. He's assassinated, and uh, so his son Josiah takes the reign. And Josiah is crowned as king as a boy, eight years old. So he is the boy king. Um, when he is 18, 10 years later, he has kind of a re religious revival, personal revival, if you will, and uh, uh, seeks to cleanse the land of the pagan influences that his father had brought in, okay? Um, and there's a significant event that takes place here. Uh, he orders that the temple be refurbished. Uh, because of the decades of apostasy, uh, the temple's been neglected. Um, maintenance is poor, it, you know, become run down, cluttered with all kinds of gods and shrines and stuff within the temple, and so he, he orders that it be cleansed, okay, and that it be refurbished. While they are actually cleaning out the temple, they discover the law, the Torah. And we're not quite sure if this is all five books of Moses or simply Deuteronomy. That's debated among the scholars. But the point is, the people of Judah had essentially lost the law during the time of Manasseh. That nobody even knew where the sacred scrolls were or, paid or cared, paid attention to them. They had forgotten about them. And so they discover here the law of the Lord, and Josiah has it read to him. And as he's hearing this, especially Deuteronomy, he's thinking, whoa, we have gone a long ways from what the law here demands. We have forsaken the covenant. The curses are due us big time. And so he then instigates what's called Josiah's Reformation. And it's a significant one. He 
orders that all of the pagan gods and idols and shrines and so forth be destroyed throughout Judah, okay, uh, including the high place altars and the uh, golden calves and so forth that exist now in Judah as well. Not only that, but uh, he goes up into the northern kingdom, recognizing that's still the covenant land that God had given to the people. Having read the, the Torah, he sees that. So he has all those shrines, including the one at Bethel, Bethel, destroyed. So it's a purging of the pagan influences in both the southern and the northern parts of the promised land. So it's a great reformation. Unfortunately, um, he, he makes a miscalculation. The Egyptians, 609 BC, are coming up to uh, fight the Assyrians. And Josiah sides with the uh, uh, Mesopotamians and goes out to fight the Egyptians up here in kind of the plain of Megiddo up here, and loses his life, okay? So uh, he, he is killed. But nonetheless, there is a great reform that takes place, and he is considered the great reformer. And the reform is based essentially on a rediscovery of the scriptures and uh, the message of the scriptures. So many have compared it to Martin Luther and his reformation that took place because of rediscovery of the scriptures.